0: Winter is the perfect time to curl up with a blanket, a cup of hot tea, and a cozy mystery novel. What's better than spending the chilly evening indoors attempting to answer the age old question, who done it? Well, if you lived in New York City in the early 70s, there's one place you would have gone to pick up your newest cozy read. It was called Murder Inc. That's I N K, as in the ink from a pen. And it was the first American bookstore solely devoted to selling mystery novels. The -the hole-in-the-wall bookshop was run out of a tiny storefront in Manhattan's Upper West Side. The decor was, in a word, eclectic. A plastic skeleton hung facing the front door as if to welcome or threaten any would-be customers. The floors were plaid linoleum, and the wallpaper was paisley. Flower arrangements hung from the ceiling. Tall wooden bookshelves lined the walls, each one overflowing with hundreds of paperback books. Here and there, you might stumble upon the jar of pretzels, or a cat curled up on the floor. When you were ready to check out, you would head towards the huge desk at the front of the room, and there sat the store's owner, 31-year-old Dillis Wynne. With short, dark hair and eyes that seemed to be sizing up other people, Dillis cut an intimidating figure, but she was also one of the most beloved people in the mystery novel community. She was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1939, but her mother brought her to the United States when she was still a baby. She grew up among her extended family in New Jersey, and strangely enough, she never had a particular affinity for mystery stories. Sure, she read Nancy Drew, but that was basically a rite of passage for any girl in the mid-20th century. It wasn't until she graduated from college in 1961 that she became, as the New York Times put it, a serious reader of mysteries. Charles Dickens, Arthur Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie, she often read two full novels each day. And that was all on top of her full-time job as a copywriter. By 1971, Dillis was making a good living, but she wasn't passionate about her work. She started daydreaming about turning her love of mystery novels into a job. Now, when Dillis wanted something, she didn't hesitate to get it. One Wednesday, she decided she would open a bookstore that only sold mystery novels, and she settled on the name Murder, Inc. On Thursday, she walked around Manhattan until she found a suitable building for rent. On Friday, she signed the lease. And over the next six weeks, she built up a stock of over 1,500 different titles, moved in her desk, and hung up her iconic skeleton. And just like that, it was time for the grand opening. On her first day of business, a reporter from the New York Times stumbled inside. He was so charmed by the odd little store that he wrote a positive review about it in the paper. The next thing Dillis knew, she had a near-constant flood of customers, ranging from bookworms to forensic scientists and police detectives. Just one year after opening, she had doubled her stock, opened a mail-order business, and even started catering to mystery novel collectors. To celebrate her success, she invited friends and customers to a party. In true Murder, Inc. fashion, the get-together had a grisly name, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. When guests arrived, they were promptly served a Bloody Mary. And this party helped Dillis realize something about herself. She actually liked hosting parties more than running her bookstore. In 1975, she sold Murder, Inc. and pivoted to organizing mystery-centric events. Every Sunday, she hosted Mystery Talks, where she interviewed writers, editors, and other guests in front of a live audience. She put together a two-week mystery reader's tour of Great Britain, complete with a stop at the Tower of London and a walk through Jack the Ripper's neighborhood. And through all these events, Dillis met and became friends with a ton of novelists. And she got to thinking, what if, instead of writing mysteries, she gave these authors a chance to solve one. In 1977, she teamed up with two other women to plan a murder mystery party for the ages. It was held at the Mohonk Mountain House in New Platts, New York, in the dead of winter. 250 people were invited to bear witness to a murder, a staged one, that is, and then try to solve the case. Among the guests were authors Isaac Asimov and Stephen King. The party was such a success that it's been held annually ever since. Murder, Inc. shut down in 2006, but Dillis Wynn's legacy continues to delight and inspire those who love a good, cozy wintertime read. And although the beloved bookshop founder passed away in 2016, she donated her body to science, perhaps in the hopes that she might help future physicians learn to solve the mysteries of medicine. Animals really are incredible, aren't they? I think that most of us have dogs or cats in our lives who are cherished, silly, and maybe even a little bit bizarre. I know in my family, we have a running joke about what's going on between our dog's ears, and I think most people think about that every once in a while, usually after a beloved family pet does something way too smart or chaotic. But sometimes they seem so human, especially when they're reminding us that it's time for dinner. But one species actually can speak to us, if we give them time and attention. It turns out that Edgar Allan Poe wasn't too far off the mark with his smack-talking feathered friend. Some species of birds, including cockatiels, crows, and yes, even ravens, are capable of speech. And of course, let's not forget about parrots, although they tend to either be the bee villain in Aladdin or incessantly asking if Polly wants a cracker. But back in the early 1800s, a funny little birdie was discovered in South America that changed history. There are about 350 species of parrots spread across almost every continent, from Australia to Asia and Africa to the Americas. And they'll eat just about anything, even meat, which opens up a bunch of possibilities for a new winged Halloween beastie. Some are as big as a house cat, well, almost. And parrots can almost live as long as 35 to 50 years depending on the species. But the oldest ever recorded was a cockatoo named Cookie, who died at the age of 82. And yes, some species of parrots can learn to talk. Although, if you want a chatty pet that will probably be with you for the rest of your natural life, you should know that it takes some practice and patience. And treats. Lots and lots of treats. Now, we humans have always been drawn to parrots' colorful plumage and even more colorful attitudes. Alexander von Humboldt was no different. Humboldt was a geographer and a naturalist by trade, and he absorbed the Enlightenment idea of learning anything and everything, making it his life's work. Swinging between charismatic and annoying, Humboldt churned out an impressive amount of work before his death. He traveled to four continents, wrote over 36 books, and 25,000 letters, allegedly only slept four hours a night, and lived basically on coffee. He called it concentrated sunbeams. I like to call it nap in a cup. My kind of guy, right? So it's not surprising that tall tales about his exploits appeared over time. He seems like a bizarre mix of a mad scientist and an adventurer with all the stories that he told. But one of those anecdotes might not have been as fictional as we thought. In June of 1799, Humboldt set out from Spain on a journey that would take him the length and breadth of North and South America, lasting about five years. He would bounce through different countries and colonies before making his way back to Europe, he hoped, with new discoveries to publish. And he got what he wanted, recording vast amounts of raw ecological and zoological data about every place he visited. He also made sure to note the cultures he encountered, the conversations he had, and the people he met. And to be fair, speaking Spanish was a huge help, giving him the ability to talk to most indigenous tribes he came across, because few places had escaped Spain's grasping greedy fingers in the century since Columbus's conquest, and everything that followed. That unifying language also helped Humboldt gain insight into the peoples he met, no matter where they lived. According to one story, Humboldt made a fascinating, extraordinary discovery in the depths of the Venezuelan jungle around 1800. He was exploring the Orinoco River and staying with the local Carib tribe. These people kept several parrots in cages throughout the village, and many of them could and would speak to anyone who talked to them. Delighted by what he saw, Humboldt observed each parrot in turn, and then began to realize that one bird sounded different from the others. After asking his hosts about the creature, he learned that it hadn't originally been theirs. The parrots had come from a neighboring tribe, one of the Carib people's enemies. Some years before, the tribe had been driven away from their lands, and the last members died decades before Humboldt's arrival, meaning that all aspects of their culture died out with them. Well, all but one. You see, Humboldt realized that this parrot must have learned to speak its original owner's language and was therefore the last living creature to do so. Leaping into action, he managed to phonetically record about 40 words from the near-dead language and saved it from total extinction. Now, the truth of the story might always be a little iffy, and this project was relatively minor compared to his other work, but it has been a gift and an inspiration for linguists and even artists to this day. In fact, in 1997, an artist taught that language to a pair of modern parrots, and knowing how long they live, it'll probably be with us for many more years to come. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. The show was created by me, Aaron Mankey.